Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Adobe has had a bad week with exploits out in the wild and no patch on the horizon. We'll tell you the details. Have you ever had your credit card stolen? We'll tell you how. And then it's a harsh reality for IT departments, a great big batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and a heck of a lot more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 198 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 22nd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Our live stream, well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You got to go check it out and see why I'm so excited. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. How you doing over there? Sorry about the 4x3 this week. I'm experimenting with Ubuntu Mate Edition. Yeah. And you're coming in. Bo- it breaks everything. The audio listeners won't even know, though. They'll have no idea. They'll just think that... I don't know. I think they might detect the difference in the audio quality. Damn it, Alan. Damn it. Well, uh, it's. I feel like it's been longer than a week. This is... This is our... I don't know. It's our regular time to it's get together. It's second... Is it... No, I guess it's our third episode back, too. Yeah. I was just, yeah. It felt really weird not doing a bunch in a row around Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem like it's been a little longer this week than usual. I, uh, I've already, so I've had to start the process uh, to get a passport. Um, and I've already, because I'm going to, I'm going to try to make it to the, uh, what is it called? Uh, the uh, BSD... Uh, oh, BSD CAN. Yeah, I'm going to try to make it a BSD CAN. Nice. I already screwed up the application process. So I'm about on track for my typical... But I think everything's going to be fine. I allowed myself some time to screw things up. Now I'll refile it with some urgency, some stink behind it, and I should make it up there for BSD CAN, and we're going to have to totally do an on-location. I have no idea how, but we're going to have to do an on-location TechSnap of some style. Yeah. We got it. I've, I've never, we've never done a TechSnap that isn't produced here in the studio. So right. that, that'll be a new challenge for us, but we'll figure it out. Well, you've done almost every other show on location somewhere. Right? Yeah, so you've done last on locations. Last, and yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty much. Well, maybe one other show, I think, but it, the, the, the challenge with TechSnap is uh, it's a different beast. It's a different beast yeah. than all of those. We have a lot to go over this week, and this is an example of why it would be complicated. So uh, where are we starting in the news this week, Alan? Uh, I guess the top story this week is uh, another Flash Zero yeah. Day. Uh, this one's a little different. Yeah. Well, well yes and no. Uh, so, first of all, uh, there's a new exploit uh, used. Uh, so there's a exploit kit called Angler, which is uh, the, basically the one that's taken over now that the black hole exploit kit got shut down. Mm. Uh, and in Angler, they currently have three Flash exploits in their inventory that they use to infect computers. Okay. Uh, the first is uh, a slightly older one that's been around for a little while. It mostly hits uh, Flash version 15 and earlier, so they're hitting people that haven't updated yet. Um, the, one of the interesting things about that exploit is that Adobe did the patch back in November, and nine days after the patch, it was added to the exploit kit. Uh, so it seems the exploit kit guys managed to um, get the exploit either from the proof of concept or by reverse engineering the patch and then add it to their inventory. Right, so it's almost one of the ones where um, the fix actually led them to finding the vulnerability so they could use it. But you know, in that case, that's not a big deal because that nine-day window meant most people updated in time and it mm. was okay. Mm. Uh, the second one is CVE 2015-0310, which was the fix for that was released today. So okay. go and update your flash right now. It's uh, like 16.0.2 something something that something anyway. Um, 
And so that one was basically a zero day. It was being exploited in the wild, uh, at least yesterday and probably a couple of days before that. Hmm. Uh, and, but they have a fix out now. The big news item, though, is that there's a third exploit that hasn't been assigned a CVE number yet. Oh, and Adobe doesn't know what the exploit is yet. They just know that it is working and exploiting people who even are fully patched with today's patch. Even if you're fully patched with today's patch, you can still have your flash exploited. Uh, because there's this third vulnerability that they haven't figured out yet. Hmm. Sounds like a mess, Alan. Uh, a little bit. Um, so the biggest, uh, you know, even Kreb says you pretty much can't just disable Flash. So the best option is the click to play. Uh, this will keep all the ads from uh, running mm. and stuff. But yeah. if you want to watch a video on YouTube or JB or whatever, you click and then it starts Flash. And, you know, if you're only running things you trust, you're much less likely to get exploited than by the drive-by ads on every random website you visit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so most of these exploit kits rely on um, getting the exploit at some point, usually reverse engineering the patch or getting uh, based on the proof of concept or just buying an exploit for it after the fact. You know, once they know there's uh, a vulnerability out there, then they can t uh, target it and try to build something to infect users. Uh, in that case, as long as you're staying updated, you're okay. But in this case, they have uh, one of the three is, well, actually two of the three were zero days, although one of them, the patch is out now, so it's less of a big issue. But with this uh, newest one, the third one that they don't even have a, a vulnerability number for yet, uh, means the, it seems the exploit kit authors either found the vulnerability themselves or bought it from somebody or somehow found out about it uh, before mm. Adobe did. Yeah. And uh, so they are already exploiting it, and now Adobe has to play catch-up. Uh, so both uh, security researchers and Adobe are not even sure where the flaw mm. is in Flash Player yet. They don't actually know what the problem is, so they have to find that, then find a way to fix it, and then release, you know, test it and release the patch. Yeah, and well, the uh, so implication and, and another emergency patch for Flash coming up uh, in the next couple of days, probably. The implication, if it's already on the market, then think about how far ahead the Black Hat community is of Adobe. If it's something they've already identified, that Adobe has zero idea and could have already been placed on the market, bought and turned into and incorporated into somebody's attack. Uh, that gives right. well, you a kind of an indication of how far ahead they are of Adobe. Well, it's a lot of surface area to cover. It's not so much they're just ahead of Adobe, just they happen to have found something and, and are being black hats about it instead of white hats, right? <laughs> you know? uh, usually it's some other researcher finds it and then tells Adobe and we get the fix and you know, an exploit for it either never comes out or gets made after the fact and as long as you're past, you're okay. Uh, but in this case, it's... Uh, the fact that the bad guys are ahead here, so everybody has to play catch up. And uh, the big problem is here, because it's a zero day, right? With a normal vulnerability, uh, you know, we normally see like an embargo type thing. You know, like Google says uh, with theirs the other week that they were having the tip with Microsoft over. It's like, we find it, we tell you about it, you give you 90 days. And ideally, Microsoft would make up a patch in under 60 days and get it out. And then Google wouldn't release the details until the end of the 90 days so that uh, the bad guys wouldn't be able to start building the exploit for based on the vulnerability until the end of that 90 days. But the patch came out at like 60 days or even sooner. That means people had that month in between to patch, right? So that was like a, a, a negative 30-day vulnerability, right? Or I guess a 30-day vulnerability is only if you were 30 days behind on your patches would you be vulnerable. Right. But this one, because it's a zero day, there's going to be a number of days going forward from now uh, 
where there's nothing you can do other than disable flash and, and try to stop it. Uh, in particular, though, they do highlight uh, malware bytes. Their free version has some mitigation for this particular attack. Uh, it can detect specifically the exploit kit that's using it, I think, and, and its fingerprint. So it's not necessarily 100% protection, but it is something if you are concerned, you can try okay. uh, that. That's their free software from malware bytes. Uh, and I also linked to Krebs's article and a couple other articles that cover it. Uh, also, there was an interesting thing. Due to a bug in the Angular exploit kit, it was only targeting users of Internet Explorer on Windows um, because of a bug, and they actually changed it. Uh, they, they fixed the bug today and released a new version of the Angular exploit kit that will actually hit Firefox and Chrome users as well. So if you see news reports that this thing only affects Internet Explorer, yeah. that was only true yesterday. <laughs> that is temporary. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well, I felt superior for like a good day, yeah. at least. Uh, the chat room asks, when is everybody going to use HTML video rather than Flash? HTML video can't do live. So if you want to watch TechSnap live, you have to use Flash. There's, there's no way to do it in HTML5. Not yet, right? Are they right. working on that, Alan? Well, there's a standard called MPEG-Dash, but basically it comes down to Firefox would have to license a codec. So I guess eventually we technically might be able to do it with... Um, What's the open source video codec? I guess like Aug Theora or VP9 maybe. I, I, I think Google's working on it in VP9. Right, but there might still be some patents on that or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, possible. But basically, yes, live is really not going to happen. So, at least not for a long time. I mean, jeez. Uh, that's why you know what? Honestly, let's just forget about I mean, live. The biggest thing about uh, doing uh, and. MPEG-4 is that Mozilla would have to pay for every user to have the the decoder or something. So, I don't know. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. Uh, we have this conversation. Uh, uh, we were actually experimenting with WebRTC during the show, during the pre-show. And there's yeah. still a lot of room there for progress, that, or at least there yeah. needs to be more progress there. Uh, but when I think about it, and I'm just going to put this out there, you know, we could all just drop video and just go with audio. Just saying. We could just stream audio. <laughs> no, you don't think so, Alan? You're you know, trying game, to kill we, my entire business. Oh, sorry, Alan. Well, hey, I got a, I got like, a little skin in the game, I, too. I, I so. make <laughs> all of my money off Flash video streaming. <laughs> all right, so fair enough. So please stop trying to kill Flash. Fair enough. All right. I mean, I make. I, I got some skin in the game, too. But uh, uh, all right. Uh, so anything else on that story? Uh, no. There's uh, lots of links if you want to follow up and read more, including uh, the original researcher who discovered the fact that the uh, Angular exploit kit was using this new vulnerability that nobody has identified yet. Hmm. That's uh, fascinating. And I have links to like the Adobe Security Advisory on it where they say, uh, where they're investigating reports that there's uh, another vulnerability that affects even the newest version and so on. Oy vey. All right, very good. Okay, well then let's take a minute and talk about IX Systems. Have you heard about IX Systems? Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out some of their awesome rigs powered by those incredible Intel Xeon processors that are truly just at the top of their game. And IX Systems at the top of their game as well. They truly know how to integrate open source solutions with the best hardware, give you a white glove experience from pre-purchase all the way to the end. They do burn-ins so that way if you have to deploy it to a data center, you don't have to worry about wasting your time when something fails. IX Systems has an incredible setup. They really have people that are experts in all areas. If you have some high-performance storage or some major, even like, like here at the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios, I wouldn't consider us high-performance, but we have high demands. We can have slower storage, 
but we still have to have a lot of it. And we're always constantly trying to evaluate how that should look. IX Systems has some great posts up on their site, too, that can help you kind of think through some of this. Check out their What's News section, and they just have a post up uh, on from the 15th. Free NAS versus true NAS. Have you gone through this yeah. one? It's a question a lot of people ask. Is all right, So I know about free NAS, but what's true NAS and what's the difference? And they kind of go through what the differences are. You know, Free NAS is open source, and so it's designed to be flexible, right? Because people want to do that do-it-yourself thing and, and make it, you know, be a their home media server and and you know install a jail on it and do this on it and all these different things whereas the true nas is more like your corporate appliance thing right it's designed for enterprise so it's all about uh stability uptime and not having to do it yourself right it's just something you order it uh to your specifications they ship it you plug it in in the corner and you never have to touch it again right and you know there's, there's something you always want to be able to fiddle with there's a lot of businesses that where what they're storing is some of their most important property, some of their most important information, and that means they want a package with that that's end-to-end professional support for that because it's so critical to their business, and that's where it fits in really nice. Here at JB Studios, we use FreeNAS for our needs, and it works amazing. Uh, and IX Systems are the folks behind that. They recognize projects like this, and they they empower the people that work on them and give them the freedom to just kind of embrace their passion. Uh, I mean, look at all of the cool projects around IX Systems, like FreeNAS, like PCBSD, all of these things that are worked on that are incredible parts of the community that IX Systems has the long foresight to recognize if they make the investment in the people behind those, they'll make the overall open source ecosystem better and make their business better. That's why they attend all the fests, too. It's really cool. Yes. Check them out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And next time you're looking to buy some hardware for your data center, for your infrastructure, give them a serious consideration. And on that, too. What's that? Or your house, right? If you need a little free mini, stick under your desk. Yeah. They're quiet. Yeah. Low power. Yeah. It's a great way to get that's, you know, that's one of the ways I got started with IX. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And a big thanks to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I, uh, like, you know, have, having been in the IT industry for a very long time, I look at what they do and go, finally, they got the mix right. I think it's really well, cool. Well, I, I think the biggest surprise for me was always just how good the prices are. Like, I always expected them yeah. to be a lot more expensive than doing it myself. And it turns out most of the time they're actually even cheaper yeah. than doing it myself well, on top of taking all the risk and, and, and problems out of it. They, well, those early investments they made to make those super long-term hardware partnerships have paid off, I think. Yep. So there's a very smart strategy. Okay, Alan, well, this next one cuts close because it just got done dealing with stolen credit cards. Uh, yep. And I tell you, Alan, it hurts. It hurts, and Brian Crabb sheds a little light on it for us, doesn't he? Well, yeah, you know, I've, I've had the same problem uh, before, especially uh, our corporate card. We use it in a lot of different places all over the place, uh, you know, and so uh, Krebs gets uh, this question a lot in his email and he I bet. privately replies to each one <laughs> and he finally says, why don't I just write a big post on the front page yeah. and explain? Yeah, really. Uh, so he wrote a, uh, a post on this thing, uh, basically answering the question or kind of giving the background on, my credit card was stolen can you help me find out how or who, right? Uh, and so he's kind of broken down all the different ways your credit card can be stolen uh, and what, uh, how likely it is that that oh, was the way. This is great. And how likely it is you will be able to prove that that's how it happened. All right, so uh, audience at home, uh, make a note in this time in the TechSnap program. And then when somebody in your family or, or friends or extended group uh, has this happen to them, you can send them a time link on YouTube to this moment in the show Alan's about to break it down. Yeah. Uh, so the first one, obviously, is, you know, a hacked Main Street merchant or restaurant, right? Like we saw this Target, Home Depot, Staples, P.F. Chang's, 
Uh, there was like a pizza place too. I forget. Yeah, lots, sounds, yeah. lots, lots of them. Yeah. Uh, so what makes these ones kind of specific compared to some other way of stealing your credit card is that A, it's the most common way that credit cards get stolen. And B, it's the most costly because uh, unlike ones where you steal just a credit card number or whatever, yeah. uh, when these ones are using infected point of sales devices or and things like that, they get the whole magnetic stripe. So they can just program all that onto a gift card or something, some other card, and then they can go and, and use it at the store. And, you know, when you go and buy something in store in person, the security mechanisms are lower than when you try to buy something online. There's a lot more and trust. Paper trail, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not, have, you're not having to ship it to some address where you're then going to have to be at that time to pick it up, right? Or something. Um, and you know, so that's the one. And the as far as the bad guys are concerned, it's the best way because you get more cents on the dollar, right? A stolen credit card where you have the full card is worth more to some other bad guy. So you can sell each stolen credit card for more money, versus when it's just the number that you stole from a database is a lot harder for someone to use those. But your chances of actually learning what the source of the fraud was are actually kind of low. Yeah. Like other than, you know, you see big ones on the news like Target or whatever. But even then, you know, lots of people shopped at Target. Not all those people got their credit cards stolen. Yeah. Some of the people who did shop at Target uh, and had their credit cards stolen wasn't necessarily because of Target. No, yeah. I don't know. Like for mine, for example, I shopped at Target, but I doubt my recent breach was because of that Target thing. But I guess there's no way that for me to totally know. Something else. Yeah. And yeah, there's no way to be uh, to know for sure. Yeah. So depending on your card usage, if it's a card where you haven't used it a lot of other many places, then it might be easier to narrow it down. But if it's like, I don't know, my main card I use everywhere, so it'd be impossible to yeah. know for sure which one place was the problem. Yeah. Um, the next possible one is a processor breach. Okay. This is where the bad guys actually break into one of the places that processes all the credit cards for a bunch of different stores, right? Uh, what makes those ones uh, special is just they'll get a huge number of cards in a very short amount of time because they'll see every card processed by every customer of the merchant, right? So, you know, you saw that, I was at the Heartland or whatever, the processor yeah. was the biggest one in history. Yeah. It's because basically it was like hacking, you know, every store, or, you know, one-third of every store in the country or something right. was using this payment it's processor. Like getting, it's like going upstream. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the chance of the customer learning of this one are virtually nil, right? Processor breaches are rare in the first place. And secondly, they're kind of in this weird position in the transaction, right? There's the customer who then goes to the store and uses their credit card. The store uses the, uh, the processor to then charge the bank of the customer. So when it comes down to the fraud investigation, the people involved are the customer, the bank of the customer, hmm. and then sometimes the store. The processor is not usually ever even considered, hmm. right? And so most people haven't heard of them. Most people don't even know that there is a, a, a separate company in between the store, uh, the store's bank and your bank, right? Like the, the way it actually works is you take your credit card to the store, the store right. runs to their processor, right? then goes through the Visa network to the bank of the customer and then receives the money. And then the processor then sends the money to the bank of the store. Uh, but most people don't even know it, right? They would just think that the company acquired the money from your bank and put it in their bank account. Yep. Yep. But there's actually one or two other companies in there. And, you know, uh, it's not as complicated as it used to be to, to do this online because, you know, you used to have a, have to have a merchant account and then a, a gateway. And this, anyway, um, 
but because of that, there's almost no chance that you'll find out that's how your card was actually stolen. Mm. Um, the next possible one is a hacked point-of-sale service company or vendor. Mm-hmm. So this one, instead of, say, breaching the target network and infecting their uh, point-of-sale systems, this is you infect the point-of-sale system before they ship to the stores, or you infect the company who has to go in and maintain those and right. keep them it's supposed to be installing the Windows updates on them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so with that one, you can hit a bunch of different stores, what will seem like at random, right? Because nobody really thinks of the company that takes care, right? Even most times, you like when you go to use the point of sales terminal, there's a brand name on it. Yeah. But that's not necessarily the company that's actually managing it. That's the company that made the machine, right? Off, like, right. I don't know, here it's usually like Chase or, or one of the, you know, uh, Canadian companies that... that are, some of them are owned by the banks and some of them are separate or whatever, but yeah. that's not the same as the company that actually manages it for the store, which right. is basically just an IT contractor, yeah. oftentimes a really cheap one. Could be up to the store who they pick, could be different for each store, and they might have several different clients in a city. Right, exactly. Like uh, Even if you have a chain of stores, like a Target, each Target might use an, a small IT contractor from their city. Yep. Because exactly. the people have to come on site to do the yeah. work. It's so something local management probably wants to have jurisdiction over so that way they can make the best choice for their local needs. Exactly. So you're, uh, that one is, it can be time consuming for banks and card associations to even determine how it happened, right? Because they wouldn't, you know, uh, each store doesn't tell the bank what vendor they use to manage their point of sale system. So this one's can be really hard for the bank to figure out who it was. Mm. So your chances are very low, right? Yeah, no kidding. The chance of you learning the source of the fraud is very low, given that the compromised point of sale service company or vendor doesn't have any direct relationship with you as the cardholder or yeah. the bank uh, or your bank that gave you the credit card right. or whatever. Pay no attention to the processor behind the curtain. Well, it's not even the processor in this case. The processor was a previous case. This case is just the IT guy who's supposed to be managing this point of sale system. Right, it's almost uh, most of them probably work more like the the air conditioning management company that was at Target, right? Having some backdoor into the store's network to manage the POS systems, it'd be actually one hop less work for them to break in because instead of having to get from the air conditioning system to the point of sales, the backdoor goes straight to the point of sales system. Yeah, not fun. Hmm. Uh, the next one is a hacked e-merchant. Uh, or e-commerce merchant, right? This is an online store or whatever that gets hacked in their database has credit cards in it. Sure, which happens. Uh, yeah, uh, this one, uh, what makes these ones specific is the re- the result of uh, online fraud or whatever. Uh, consumers likely to learn about fraud uh, from just from their monthly card stream, right? All of a sudden they'll see, oh, here's a charge I didn't make, right? And the other thing is the consumer will typically uh, attribute the fraud to the company that was defrauded, right? So if, if somebody takes my stolen credit card and uses it at Amazon, you see Amazon on your bill and you're like, but I didn't buy that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that wasn't Amazon's fault, right. actually. The bad guys just bought something at Amazon. I direct that anger at my bank these days. I blame my bank. Ah, oh, compromised again. I yeah, blame the bank. But it's not necessarily your bank's no, fault either. No, 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 I know. And, and yeah. Uh, they also say that... Uh, Bank customer service representatives are trained not to give out information about the breached online merchant or address information associated with the fraudulent order. Right? So they're, uh, the bank is training people not to give away this extra information that might make it easier for you to figure out what happened. The other thing with online merchants is if it's not a big one like Amazon, 
especially with like a little mom and pop type place, is really hard for the bank to figure out what the source is because normally what they, what, how they're doing it is they're like, okay, so here's every card that got compromised uh, in this one particular batch. And now let's compare all the credit card statements and find where all these people shopped in common. Now, you know, some of the, that might make the target one easy to spot, but at the same time, what if it's not the common denominator necessarily, right? It's just Target's so popular that every one of these people happened to have shopped there in, in this time frame. It doesn't mean that Target mm. was actually the source per Seems se. certainly possible. But uh, the thing with a small online place is that you're not likely to, you know, all the credit cards are going to be from so many different banks and, and so spread out. And it's such a small company, uh, merchant or uh, vendor that it's pretty hard for the bank to figure out the common denominator. They don't have a big enough sample size because the small e-commerce site just didn't sell that much stuff. And, you know, most of the time when there's a breach like that, uh, they're going to be hacking a bunch of small sites. Mm. And so there might not be any intersection between the people at all. Or they might even just be from vastly different geographic areas. And so the banks are just like, we don't see the pattern because the pattern's really hard to find. Mm -hmm. you, you, you basically couldn't find it without knowing what it is when you started, kind of thing. So your chance of finding out uh, which particular vendor or uh, merchant was the source of one when it was just a little online hack, that one's actually nil to low. You have very, very little chance of ever figuring out what happened there. Mm. Uh, the next one is the ATM or gas pump skimmer, right? These are the little ones that go in the machine and, and steal your credit card when you use it uh, at uh, an ATM or a, a gas station or whatever. Uh, so they attach physical devices that do it. Uh, these ones... Uh, First of all, the fraud can take many months to figure out, right? Because mm. you have to figure out that all these people happen to go to this gas station or use this particular ATM. Uh, and, you know, that could be spread out over a week or something. So it's not exactly right there, right? And it's often tied to gang activity. Your chance of finding out what the source was is actually very high. Your bank should disclose to the cardholder the source of the fraud and replace any stolen funds. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the, the bank will find out that it was a card skimmer and be like, yeah, it was a card skimmer, here's your money, or whatever. Uh, the next one is the crooked employee, right? <laughs> Uses a hidden or handhold device hmm. to copy your card to then later counterfeit it, right? So if they have the card reader, they can skim your, uh, your magnetic stripe and they get the full dump of the card that they can put on a gift card and, and go to Target or whatever. Uh, and they can buy a TV and then sell it on the black market for a fraction of what it cost them, but it didn't cost them anything, right? They got it for free with your stolen credit card. So it's all free money for them. Uh, the church, uh, characteristics of this one, it's most frequently committed by restaurant workers, often tied to like crime rings and so on, but also sure. seasonal or transient workers. Mm -hmm. People, you know, like places that are only home. open, like, right. like food trucks mm -hmm. and, and like ice cream wagons and stuff where... You know, it's just going to be, you know, if you come back the next day, they're not going to be there. <laughs> right. Or you even figure somebody who just gets a temporary job, maybe they have a little exactly. computer savvy and they figure, hey, you know what? While I'm waiting tables well, for a couple of be, weeks. You don't have to be computer savvy. You just Here's the thing. Swipe every card you get and uh, give them to us and we'll pay you. Yeah, I suppose that's probably even more common, huh? Yeah, it does yeah, make sense. It's, it's more common to be done by people yeah. that don't have any of the skills. Right. And they don't, they're just doing something for somebody else and they're getting a cut. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's often tied to crime rings and gangs and so on. Uh, the next one is actually physically losing your card or having it stolen. Sure. Right? If your wallet gets stolen or sure. you leave your credit card on the table at the restaurant. Uh, I, you know, apparently at bars, they end up with stacks of them by the end of the night. 
and they keep them for a week and then cut them up or whatever. Um, but uh, this one is it's actually a, the smallest source of fraud across all credit cards. Hmm. Uh, consumers generally either know immediately that they've lost their card because mm. they can't find the damn thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or the bank finds it when it's been stolen, right? So, yeah, if your wallet gets stolen or you lose your card, you right. usually know about it fairly soon. And also, uh, your bank usually catches the fraudulent transactions because there's kind of a specific pattern that normally happens with a stolen physical card like that, uh, right? Often a small test transaction, like uh, using it at a gas station to make sure it still works. And then, you know, then you go straight to the to the big box store and buy a 72-inch plasma or whatever. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I had a uh, I had a laptop transaction declined once by my bank because I bought gas right before I tried to buy the laptop. And their fraud detection system's like, "Oh, you bought gas!" Oh, <laughs> so then they put me on special watch. Apparently, yeah. Well, you, you bought gas. You you filled up the the tank of your runaway getaway car, and right. then you went to the store and bought. <laughs> a- a very expensive yeah. I like to think the bank is fantasizing about like this illustrious life that I was leading where I was a criminal on the run, stealing somebody's car, filling it with a stolen credit card, and then buying a laptop from Best Buy. Hoorah! <laughs> yep. Or Dell.com, as the case was. So your chance of finding out that that's how your credit card was stolen are pretty high since you lost or had your credit card stolen, so you know exactly what happened. Uh, so... Even though that's the least likely one to happen, it's the one where you're most likely to find out what actually happened. Yeah. Um, next one is malware on your computer, right? So malicious software that hooks into the victim's browser and you know runs a keylogger or whatever and just looks for that certain string of numbers or uh, is skimming the forms and uh, even if you're using LastPass or whatever, it fills out the form and submits it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they will uh, just steal your credit card number as you type it in. Uh, whether that's to check your online banking, to pay your credit card bill, or to actually buy something at a store. And, uh, you know, you can blame the the place you tried to... Even if you only made one transaction on your credit card that month, yeah. you're like, okay, so it was definitely Amazon that lost my credit card. It's like, well, actually, no. It's the fact that your computer was infected. Yeah. I can see that. So your chance of discovering that your computer is infected is fairly good. Uh, but your chance of definitively tying the the stolen, the, the fact that your credit card number was used unauthorized way uh, because of the malware is actually pretty low, right? It'd be very hard to prove that that's why it happened and that it wasn't also stolen over here at the same time or something, right? So just because you have malware doesn't mean that's how your credit card got stolen, but there's a good chance it could be. I think uh, the one that was funniest when my card was used somewhere is somebody tried to use it at Napster, it was a couple of years ago, but it was long after Napster was well and truly dead. Too bad you don't right? get an idea of what they were buying. Maybe some hip hop. Yeah, it was like eight dollars. I think it was a, it was a test transaction, okay. basically. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, a couple of dollars, and and that's all they were after. Because the other one I remember is when I wanted to buy my sister a gift card for Netflix for Christmas. Yeah. Or maybe it was yeah, I remember you too. told me about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and their gift card store had to be shut down because. Uh, some Brazilian gang had been using it to test all their stolen credit cards. And so they just had like huge number of fraud charges for $7.99. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the last possible uh, way to have your credit card stolen is a physical record of theft. Sure. Uh, this is a merchant, government agency, or some other entity that's charged with storing or protecting card data, uh, improperly disposing of it. Somebody, you know, um, this is the way that credit card stealing used to happen in the olden days 
right? Is that stores had kept like receipts and physical records and, you know, filing cabinets of files. And when they're done with them, they throw them away and not shred them properly or whatever, right? And somebody would go dumpster diving and come up with a sheaf of credit cards. Uh, so usually not that high volume and definitely less common form of fraud than it used to be because people don't tend to keep things like that on paper much anymore. And the places that do learn their lesson and hire companies that come up with a a truck with a paper shredder in it to, to <laughs> yep. shred the, the files before they even leave oh, the yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but your chance of finding out that that's how your credit card was stolen is pretty, pretty low. Because uh, half the time, the place, the government agency doesn't know that it was stolen because they threw it out or whatever, right? Uh, so, you know, Krev says uh, he hopes that kind of clears it up for some people. And uh, most uh, consumers are unlikely to ever discover the true source or the reason that for the credit card fraud. And it's far more important to keep a close eye on your statement and uh, nip those unauthorized charges in the bud. Yeah. Uh, and report the activity as quickly as possible. Not only, you know, obviously your bank will refund you and it's uh, it maybe de-hassles you a little bit. Uh, but the, the main reason to do that is so that you can, uh, the bank can start their investigation sooner and try to find that common link and uh, stop it before even more fraud yeah. happens. Yeah, when I detected fraud in my account, luckily we caught it the night of, and so, uh, you know, immediately the next yeah, morning. Uh, I have my, uh, especially my corporate card, actually sends me a text message yeah, every time it's charged. that's really nice. And, and so, like you know, I, I catch it within a couple of minutes. Yeah. I remember the last time it actually happened. I got a text, and I was like, that's really strange. Right. What's going on there? Yeah. And then I get a second one. I'm like, okay, definitely something hinky. So I'm dialing the bank, and I'm going through the menu, and I'm halfway through the menu, and then my phone starts ringing. It's my bank calling me to ask me about those fake checks. Well, you know, the chat room was uh, joking uh, during the uh, show, saying, well, uh, maybe what banks need to do is uh, on the Microsoft Azure cloud, they need to go through their big data and detect heuristically tr generated trends, I forget what he said, something like that, and discover all of this activity in big terms or something like that. And in a way, you could actually almost see like these systems beginning to learn well, actually, what... Actually, we, we, we talked about that last week. Yeah. Um, just going to add a link to the end of the show notes here for Stripe, reference to that one of the new credit card processing companies right uh the, that uh you as a merchant would use like this is what we use at scale engine has just launched their new machine learning fraud detection system that does basically exactly that and didn't amazon kind of imply last week they have one too or something yes. like that yeah that's uh well we implied that uh they are confident enough in theirs that right. they don't require you to yeah. enter the three-digit code off the back of the this, credit yeah, card yeah the, yep uh, so fascinating to see that. Uh, so with chat room, while you were joking about big data, I think you actually might be right. Right. And well, and that the banks have been doing that. Uh, the biggest thing is that uh, Stripe is doing theirs with an API and with the stores to uh, when they block something, they actually, you know, the customer can uh, force it to go through and they uh, can kind of increment the machine learning, like actually add stuff to to correct the machine learning, to actually make it learn. Whereas... The banks, when they falsely block something, they don't seem to actually be adjusting their algorithm yes, to say, oh, that point. wasn't fraud. <laughs> great point. But it still sucks. You it still sucks. You, you have to have enough data, right? So if just because I said that one wasn't fraud doesn't mean that that pattern doesn't normally represent fraud right. at the same time. That right? could have been a one-off, perhaps. Yeah. And so it all comes down, you basically can't have a, a all-or-nothing kind of thing. Yeah. Every, every transaction is just going to have to have a score. Yeah. And then you're going. the bank has to decide, all right, well, this one has a higher chance of fraud, but because it's for a smaller amount, it is less hassle to allow it and deal with it after. Whereas 
this person's trying to buy a $2,500 laptop, that's a big risk. We're more likely to block that, and you can call us from the store, and we'll allow it uh, after we verify your identity. You know, Alan, somebody needs to come up with like a, a way to do transactions where it's cryptographically signed and cryptographically secure and verified. And that would probably solve some of this. Or even maybe something like a two-factor. So you, uh, you know how my, my phone sends me a text message when I use the yeah, car. Yeah, I suppose. Well, what about <laughs> instead I have the app or whatever and I use right. the card and the app's like, do you want to allow this? Well, yes. and you know. Uh, but to, then can you imagine, if, if, even if that only takes like 60 seconds, to, well, to, how much slower would that make the grocery store line? To play a devil's advocate, though, uh, today you can use Apple Pay and it uses a combination of a token for your credit card and your fingerprint and you put it on the device and you hold your fingerprint on Touch ID. And fingerprint it, is really not a good way to do that, though. <laughs> well, I, but, it's, but it already, like, that is already a system that's working today. Right, so but that's we're not getting more secure per se. Perhaps not, but we're getting Chip closer is, to. It's supposed to be better, sure. right? And whatever, whatever the standard works out to be, that's fine. But I, I feel like it's getting closer to solving this problem with that kind of system. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, so, um, luckily, most consumers enjoy zero liability, right? Where you know, if your credit card gets stolen, you're not responsible for any of the money that was stolen. Mm. Your bank just gives it back. Mm-hmm. Part of that's because your bank really wants you to keep using the credit card instead of cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have to worry about trying to track down the source of the fraud. You know, in some countries where they didn't have that originally, you know, it's up to you to try to figure out what the hell happened and oh prove boy. that it wasn't you or whatever. Oh, boy. And that was actually part of the problem in the UK with the chip and pin is they changed some of the rules with chip and pin where it's like, well, if you went there and you used the pin, then you can't claim it was fraud until they found that there was a problem where someone could actually replay a transaction and, and fake the pin or whatever. Uh, and we covered that on TechSnap like a year ago. Uh, but... The other thing is with the coming changes to chip and uh, uh, switching to chip and pin in the U.S. is also changing the way liability works on the store side. Uh, currently, you know, when a um, when someone uses a fake credit card at a store or a stolen credit card at a store, usually the store is responsible for all the they just lose the money that uh, was stolen, and you know you, your bank pays you back, but it's because they took the money back from the store, and the store is left holding the bag on it, right? Uh, which is, you know, happened to me before. You know, customer pays for some streaming and then mm. and then claims it was fraud after fact. Mm. Right? And then we're just out the money. Um, it doesn't really happen much with Scale Engine, but uh, the company I had before had the problem a lot. Um, but they're changing a little bit so that uh, the liability for... Um, if you're a store and you don't have chip and pin, then you're going to be more responsible for... Uh, stolen credit card uh, charges and so on. And so that's raising the question, now that it, it currently it's the, in the banks has kind of a vested interest in keeping the results of their investigation secret as to who got leaked or, that's or a good who point. was the problem. Yeah. But if it comes down to the store where the credit, stolen credit card was used is out this money, uh, do they then have some uh, standing to go after the other store who leaked the credit cards? Right. So if you're, you know, uh, the gas station where people are using the stolen credit cards and you're out all this money, then do you maybe have standing now to go after Target because it was their fault they got hacked That's and that you lost this money? No way that no way that'll last. The big corporations will make sure well, legislation. Well, yeah, uh, Visa will put it in their uh, in order to accept Visa. You have to promise not to do that. I, I, of course. But um, it just might be interesting to see 
a little less secrecy happening here and more blaming uh, once it's you know uh, the banks have a little less control over it because mm. like we saw the, it's the banks are trying to keep everything hush hush and make everybody believe everything is safe uh, because that's how they make their money right they want everybody to just trust it but very much all right so Alan that brings us I believe right are you all done with that story yep I'm done and I, I just added a link to the Stripe uh, fraud uh, machine learning thing if you want to learn more about that. Well, let me tell you about something I suggest you learn more about. That's saving some money with Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com will give you a $25 discount off your first Ting device. And if you have a Ting-compatible device, it'll give you $25 of credits. Techsnap.ting.com. Go try the savings calculator. I can confidently say now in my second year of Ting that I've saved over $2,000 by switching to Ting. And Ting has a whole range of devices, from the value feature phone that just, you know, makes calls and has great battery life and actually physical dialing buttons. I know, it's crazy. All the way up to some of the greatest smartphones and GSM uh, SIM cards are now shipping as well. In fact, if you didn't know, Ting is rolling out GSM kind of now. The beta phase has begun, and the first batch of beta testers are getting their SIM cards. I may have more update on more updates on that for the TechSnap audience very soon. And uh, the very cool thing about this is now you'll be able to take advantage of CDMA and GSM networks at the same time in the U.S. Best of both worlds. There are certain areas in the U.S. where the CDMA technology just simply gives you better signal, and that's what I've been reliant on, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, especially. Well, yeah, especially in less densely populated areas, right? If you're in a big metro area, then, then sure, you get great signal on... LTE or whatever, but yeah. if you're out, <laughs> the reason why it's popular in Canada is because it reaches further. Yep, exactly. Uh, but you know, when I travel, like when I go down to Portland and I'm doing a conference and stuff, I think GSM is a superior way to go. Uh, and there's uh, gonna ha I'm gonna have flexibility on my Nexus Six. Of course, you can or my Nexus Five, but you can also get it on the Nexus Six and also some of the iDevices. Ting also has I'm some. My Nexus Six tomorrow. You're getting a Nexus Six? Did I know that? Uh, I don't think so. Look at you, Alan. Well, when you travel to the U.S., uh, I bet you should, I, you know what? I bet I can get a Ting SIM for you, and I, you could just pop it in there and use a, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, time. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. Yeah, so I think you, you can probably do that when you come down here. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll see if I can't get one set aside. I'm, I just asked them to send me one, too. I don't know what device I'm going to put it in, though. I, I, could, I could do the Nexus 5, but I also could try going and get like an iPhone 6, which has kind of crossed my mind. I don't know. Anyways, there's a whole lot of options over at Ting, and they have an incredible dashboard for you to manage all of it. Uh, go over there right now, try it out, and check out some of their great used devices as well. You can get like an iPhone 4S for like 120 bucks, and you can get the HTC One for like 200 I think. Maybe not even that. might even be less than 200 now, which is just an amazing phone. So a lot of great devices, a lot of great plans, including data only. And the best part is it's just a flat $6 per device. And it's just your usage, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes on top of that. There's no contract, no early termination fee. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go try out their savings calculator. And maybe the best thing about Ting, there's a lot of options out there, but there's nobody else that has no hold customer service. You can try it out right now, one eight five five ting ftw Anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. East Coast time, that's Alan's time, and a real person will answer the phone, and they can solve your problem. Go over to the, uh, go over to the Ting blog, techsnap.ting.com. Check out their blog. They've got a whole bunch of stuff up there, including some rumors about Google getting in the wireless game. You can see their thoughts on that, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program, techsnap.ting. 
Okay, Alan, so this next story has a headline that felt like a bit of an attention grabber to me, but the fact that you put it in here makes me think maybe you think there's some legitimacy to it. But what uh, the headline this is... This is mostly issues I want to talk about. Okay. Uh, I think the headline may be a little of uh, that. But. 15% of businesses could... Uh, cla- or 15 businesses... 15... Jeez, look at me. 15% of businesses could cloud users have been hacked research says 15 percent of businesses cloud users not could but cloud users have been hacked according to research 15 yeah, percent so this is 15 percent uh, of all the accounts that people have at uh, enterprise type businesses yeah for cloud services and like that would include like onedrive dropbox yeah. box so you know if you look at a company with a thousand employees uh, and they all each have a dropbox account some of those people's account was probably hacked okay Right. Right. Okay. Uh, well, part of it, they also included like Facebook as a cloud service provider. I'm not entirely oh, okay. sure why, but and they, they probably did. guess just they probably include just guessing somebody's password and logging in as hacking too, right? right? Any anytime someone other than the right person can access a file, that's that's a hack now. Yeah. Okay. Well, if someone's stealing your files, that that's, that's a hack, it. I guess. No yeah. Which way it's just like it. so, like you know, supposedly uh, the uh, Islamic uh, online caliphate, whatever, decided to hack CentCom on Twitter, and the way they hacked it was they guessed the password. To me, right. hacking implies breaking the system in a way that gains access. When you log in as somebody else, that implies it's just like an invalid log. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I guess I tr- I don't know if but I consider it's, it's more they hijacked the account rather than hack. I get hijacking would be yeah okay. But anyways, I digress. Sorry, didn't mean to go off the rails. No problem. Uh, so there's a research company called Netscope, spelled with a K, uh, <laughs> that kind of does cloud analysis, and they found that um, only about one in every ten cloud apps is actually secure enough and has the right features to actually be used for enterprise use. Uh, most cloud apps don't, right? Most cloud apps are built by little startups and they don't really, you know, sometimes the people don't even understand what would be required to have the enterprise level features. Or they're too busy and inventing their own encryption system and then it has some sort yeah. of major flaw in it like we've seen or, with pretty, pretty much everything. They're kind of uh, rapid iteration, getting yeah. things built and out the door yeah. and not yeah. uh, thinking long term uh, ahead enough to deal with how are we going to manage this when a company wants to have all these accounts, but it has to be hierarchical, so the manager can reset their employees' accounts' passwords, but IT has is even higher than that or something like, you know? Uh, so in their survey, which they actually do, rather than uh, a lot of surveys of businesses we see where, you know, they just ask the CIO or whatever a bunch of questions, mm. uh, they do their survey by actually installing, like, uh, gateway devices in front of the router okay. that actually analyzes the traffic as it's going back and okay, forth. Okay, that's and interesting. Forth. That's interesting. I, I, that... And network probes and a bunch of stuff like that to actually see what's actually happening. Okay. They found that uh, looking at large enterprises, the average one has over 600 different cloud applications being used. And uh, 20% of the large enterprises had over 1,000 different cloud apps being used. And that includes Facebook, but that would be... uh, But that Facebook only really counts as one, I think. I don't think they count in Facebook apps. And YouTube, I think, counts as one. Yes, they also have YouTube and Gmail. And uh, and they have a list of what ones were the most popular. Uh, Actually, at the bottom, I have an infographic as well. Yeah, I'm pulling that up right now. Um, But... They had a, a bunch of different points about it, but uh, the biggest ones were just that, you know, a lot of these uh, aren't necessarily authorized apps, right? It's just, you know, I'm employee, one of like 10,000 employees at a big company and I need to share a file with Chris. I'm just going to throw it on my personal Dropbox and give Chris the URL or whatever, right? And Chris doesn't work for our company, so that's actually technically a violation of our data loss prevention policy. Sure. 
and and now data is leaking out of our company to an external person that doesn't work here. And, right. You know, that right. might actually have legal culpability at some point. But also, I might forget that I did that, and then you know, I have it's my personal Dropbox account, so it has a weak password, and I use the same password at some other site that got hacked, and on and on and on, and now somebody other than me has access to that Dropbox and all the files I store in it. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not sharing files with anybody if i'm just using the dropbox to sync the files between my work desktop and my laptop so i can work from home or whatever if someone hacks that now all they have all my work files and that's a problem and you know they're finding that uh the uh, cloud app use is on the rise more and more people are using more and more apps at these various places and you know it's becoming a bit of an issue for that. Well, especially if you're not a huge business and you don't have a lot of money a lot of times like uh, when we think okay we need a we need a QuickBooks like solution, but we don't want to do traditional QuickBooks. Uh, like it wasn't too long until we're like, well, maybe we should try the online version. Right. Yeah, we'll just try QuickBooks online. Maybe we'll try, you know. Uh, well, and if it's designed for so. enterprise and has multiple users, maybe that works. But if it's some other one where you know you start every employee in the company trying to share one account with one username and password, yeah. then there's no security there <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. No, it's not right. Good. It's no good. It's no good. That that's a problem. That's a bad thing. Yeah, and many of the applications are not designed with enterprise features, right? They lack things like uh, support for two-factor authentication, having separate users, having hierarchical access control, and, and group features and stuff like that. Uh, and so you have problems there. And some of those problems can just be they this cloud company or whatever does have an enterprise version, but they charge a lot of money for it, and we're, we're a small business, so we're just going to use the... We're going to share a password instead of buying the enterprise version where we can have each employee have a separate login to the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the report uh, also found that 8% of uh, files that were uploaded to a cloud provider like Google Drive, Dropbox, Box.com, etc. were in violation of the enterprise's own data loss prevention laws, uh, policies, right? You know, it's like these files are not supposed to go outside of the company or, you know, here's our secret source code and somebody just uploaded it to Dropbox or GitHub or whatever, um, you know. And also worse was... Uh, you know, as bad as those uploaded numbers are, right? Eight percent of all the files that are uploaded were shouldn't have been uploaded. Hmm. Uh, the download numbers are worse. Okay, twenty-five percent of all the files that uh, enterprises are storing in various cloud providers were shared with one or more people from outside of the company, and they maybe shouldn't have been. Right. Uh, and twelve percent of outsiders that have access to some uh, corporate company's cloud something have access to more than a hundred files. And most likely, they didn't need more than 100 files. But rather than giving them access to only the specific things they needed, it would just give them everything because mm-hmm. that's easier. Yeah. Uh, and you know, part of the problem is many of the cloud apps, uh, A, are not approved for enterprise, enterprise use, right? If you ask the IT department at your company if it's okay for you to use Dropbox, they would probably say no, and that's why you didn't ask. Well, and there's a, there's another component when there's a cloud service, like when it's uh, when it's Google Drive or Google Docs. That is always changing in the interface. Like you, you get users that are used to it having like their UI set out one way, and then just about every three to six months, the UI changes. And what I have found happens is users accidentally share out entire directories and folders in Google Docs, not thinking oh, yeah, that and Google gives you that warning. It's like you're creating a new document in a shared folder. This will be shared with everybody, 
but there's only an okay button not a never mind i didn't mean to do that well and you just forget exactly it's not exactly clear like you forget sometimes who you've invited to that folder and so you just think well yeah of course i know alan and chris have access to this folder it's no big deal right. and meanwhile that right. guest this you brought other on person wasn't supposed to be able to see that yeah and and i've actually been watching podcasters who kind of use the shared doc system and they'll be sitting there doing their show and, and like they've had a previous guest like all of a sudden log into the doc this, you know, that guest isn't like was on months ago and now they have access to their docs and they, they say it right in the show. Oh, so-and-so just logged into our doc. Like it, it happens to fairly technically savvy people too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, they, cause they end up sharing the whole show folder with that person instead of just yeah. individual episodes. Yep. It's funny cause actually you only ever shared individual episodes of last with me. I couldn't go through and mark right. up all your other. That's how I do it. That's I, how I, would, I like go through and, and, and troll you. Yeah, but I was the guest host, not an interviewee. Come on. Oh, well, I just do it per doc for everything. I just don't even bother with the folders because I've worked with users that have problems like that. And I figure, well, I don't want to have that problem. So, yeah. So on top of the not approved, it's just, uh, you know, when when the cloud app is uh, that are used lack the enterprise features that allow the IT or the security team to oversee the account, then they can't really solve the problem of the security of the files and so on, right? They can't enforce a password policy that your password has to be least this complex and change this often or whatever. Uh, they can't handle password resets, right? If you're using like a non-enterprise version of Google Docs, then the IT department can't reset your password for you. And, you know, like we saw with the, what was it, the, which online site did that reporter work for when he had his iTunes? Uh, yeah, Matt, oh. uh, was it, it was Wired and he'd also been a Gawker employee. Yeah, I think uh, it was Gawker Wired. Yeah. Guy. Um, you know, people can, a bad guy could socially engineer box.com or whatever yeah. and get the password reset for your account and then yeah. get in and get all your corporate files or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so if password reset, if it's an enterprise thing, then, then they'll lock it out and they'll say, no, if you need your password reset, you have to go to the IT department of your company. Right now, they might be just as susceptible to social engineering, if not more. <laughs> but it it means the responsibility for that is inside the company instead of outside, right? Right. Uh, but also, it means that it's easier to manage employees who leave, right? Um, you know, if I if there's like an official cloud provider, an official cloud like account at Dropbox or whatever for the company, then they can, as part of their process of disabling that person's like Windows login, they can go through and disable their cloud login mm -hmm. and make sure that person no longer has access to uh, any corporate files, but also make sure that any corporate files that were in their account are also available to the person that replaces them if they need that, mm -hmm. right? Because it can also be able to make sure we don't lose any data on top of making sure that data doesn't leak out. Yeah. Whereas if, if uh, an employee is using their personal Dropbox account, you can't necessarily, if you fire them, you can't make necessarily make sure that you got all your files back and they didn't keep any files. No. Right? So there's a downside to, to using uh, personal accounts or yes. anything like that as big well. big time. And that yeah. happens a lot, especially in small businesses. Yeah, and especially when you're like, all right, so we have this contractor who's going to come out and help. Like, you know, Chris, you worked as a contractor for lots of places. Oh, right? yeah. You come and, and they add you, and if you don't get taken back off later, you can still go back and access everything. Yes. Yeah. And again, like we talked about, you didn't get access to the individual one or two things you needed. You got everything because it was easy, and you have to come and ask every time. And also, I would just point out, the other thing that makes this kind of challenging is services like LastPass. I have passwords in my LastPass vault just simply because I've been lazy not to go clean them up that are first credentials that I no longer should have access to. Right. right. But these Whereas services if like that this company had had the corporate version of LastPass, which they have one, yeah. uh, and added you to the group, when they kicked you out, you would yes. lost access to all those passwords. Right. But it wasn't done like that. It was here's the spreadsheet. And then as I needed them, I saved them in LastPass. So that way I didn't have to have a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, 
it's kind of a mess. But yeah, it, it just, you know, so the worst case, obviously, is that when there's like a department or just a group of employees using some other cloud service and the IT doesn't know about it, they can't disable somebody's account when they get fired and so on. Right. Preach it, Alan. Preach it. Yep. All right. Any other thoughts? Uh, and then, yeah, uh, like I mentioned, the password resets are uh, a vector for someone to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Fader asked in the chat room, didn't someone also give you SSH credentials so you could download a certain Snowden interview in the past? That's true, Fader. Someone did do that. I wonder who that was. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I still have those SSH credentials. And, you know, SSH keys are a great example of credentials that get left lying around. Yeah. You know, people don't always put useful comments in the SSH. So then, you know, with all these keys, and because they don't have a comment explaining what they're for, mm. then you're like, well, I don't want to disable one of these because it might be important, right? Mm-hmm. Some cron script is using it or some other administrator needs it. Um, but I actually do need to find the one that's for Chris Fisher and disable it because he doesn't need access to our system anymore. Aww. And that's why it's important to, to uh, have good comments on them or yeah. use something like LDAP so you can disable yeah. uh, accounts and so on yeah. and set expirations on uh, the SSH keys and so on. Right. Okay, Alan. Well, uh, let's take a, just a quick break right here and mention the great folks over at DigitalOcean. You know about DigitalOcean, right? Simple cloud hosting. And they're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get going on your own cloud server. You're going to get root access, and you can get started in less than 55 seconds. But here's the best part. Pricing plans you start. Yeah, you can. That is, okay, that's Alan's best part, right, Alan? That's your best part. Yep. And you can get started in less than a minute with your own free BSD server, 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. But... If you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean. It's one word, lowercase. $10 credit. Try out a free BSD rig. Why not? For free for two months. Like, what a great opportunity because it's going to take you less than a minute and you don't have to put the credit card on there. You just use our promo code SNAPOcean. You try out the free BSD rig. See what Alan's been talking about for like 198 episodes. Yeah. And experiment with it. The FreeBSD challenge. You get it free yeah. for two months, so you might as well try it out. Yeah, and the best part is, is don't worry about like being like, uh, uh, you know, intimidated by setting up FreeBSD because DigitalOcean has an amazing intuitive control panel that's going to make it really easy and, to deploy. And their images are pre-set up with most of the stuff you already want already set up, and they also have great tutorials. Uh, they did quite a bit of work on making sure yeah. that's some BSD tutorials so that isn't everybody that slick? Has, hey, this is new. I want to try it out. Yeah, uh, isn't stuck. They have a great tutorial just talking about some of the differences between uh, the various Linuxes and right. BSD, and then they get uh, more in-depth on how to do all the things that yeah. you want to do on your FreeBSD box. When they do it, they really go all in. And uh, it's just like this interface. I mean, this is just a, this is a, this sets the bar. It's an amazing interface, and then they have a very straightforward API on top of it, so you can replicate the functionality on your own uh, and just have at it, or take advantage of some of the community's apps. And they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Am- Amsterdam, and London. You can put a FreeBSD server or a Linux rig in any of those spots and check it out. And then, like Alan said, also enjoy those tutorials. Once you get the rig set up in under a minute, you can go get a tutorial and you'll be off and running. And I think you're going to be really impressed. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean. $10 credit for that. You can try out the $5 rig, two months for free, and it supports your TechSnap program. Keeps us going. DigitalOcean.com. Congratulations, guys, on the successful FreeBSD launch, too. It's been really well received. It's really cool. Uh, Okay, Alan, you know, speaking of FreeBSD, guess what? You are like the content train, my friend. I heard that another massive episode of BSD Now is out, episode 73, Pipe Dreams. What is this about? What's this uh, episode uh, seventeen? The, uh, um, the like semi-graphical utility for making really long pipe command lines. Yeah, 
Have you ever done the, the crazy one where it's like, you know, grep this string from this file, or worse, cat this file, pipe grep for this, pipe sort, pipe unique, minus C, pipe sort, minus N, and they do all this stuff to it, and they're like, awk, and then XRs it at the end, right? It, it allows you to graphically build those and step through them so that when you need to change the middle of it to get it to do what you want, you can see that without erasing all the other stuff and then walk it forward. And it has a graphical thing for writing your regular expressions. Uh, so Dang. when you're writing the grep, so you do like cat file pipe grep. Uh -huh. And then while you're typing the regular expression, it's showing you a sample of the data from cat and then highlighting what's going to match the regular expression as you're typing it. So and that you can tweak it just right. And uh, guest uh, David Maxwell comes on the show, yeah. right? Yes, uh, and uh, if you want to, uh, that's just an interview with him. If, uh, we also have a link in the episode to his talk where he demoed uh, PipeCut Live at MeetBSD. Also, if you're going to be at Scale, he's presenting it there as well, uh, which is in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Very cool. Huh? You guys just keep on point up 73. Wow. That's pretty nuts. And uh, you can find that over at jupiterbroadcasting.com, episode 73 of the BSD Now program. This is the midway point of the TechSnap show, so it's a good time to get that downloading. So you got the next HD version ready to go as soon as your TechSnap program. More Alan in your face. And another guy named Chris. So you get more Alan and Chris, just a different Chris. It, I like how you do that, Alan. It makes it real simple for you. You don't have to think too much about it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Chris with a K. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't really have to pronounce it any different. Right, but I have to keep them straight in my head. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I'm okay, with the news all done. That means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your feedback to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, which none of you did this week. Starting a thread in our subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com and if you did, I missed it. And Alan, today we're going to start by helping Avid. He writes into the show. He says, ZFS me timbers, boys. Uh, at a company I work for, who we have actually mentioned on the show about two or three times in the past because they do some research, uh, we're considering using ZFS for our Mongos on Ubuntu 14.04. Here's a couple of questions that arrive from our requirements. Number one, say we want to use that ZFS, or I'm sorry, ZFS compression feature. Would ZFS need to decompress the, the needed Mongo files every time it needs to read them before it can serve up the con uh, to, uh, before it can serve the constant to the Mongo process? Or does it have some way of keeping the hot bits uncompressed to improve performance? Uh, currently, files in the ARC, I think, are uncompressed. Although the performance for decompressing is multiple gigabits per or giga, gigabits or gigabytes per second per core, so that it wouldn't actually make a difference either way. Such that they're actually looking at having everything in the arc actually be compressed, so you can fit even more stuff in your RAM mm. by actually keeping everything in RAM. Even if you're not compressing the files on disk, I think maybe they'll even compress them in RAM uh, just to make more stuff fit in the RAM cache. Um, and I. I think, if I'm not mistaken, everything that gets written to the L2 ARC SSDs is already compressed, uh, non-optionally. Um, so I'm pretty sure that stuff in the ARC will stay decompressed, but um, the decompression with LZ4 is so fast, you're not going to have to worry about it. Uh, you, I, I'm sure if you run your benchmarks or whatever and look at it, um, I don't know what operating... Oh, you're 
using Ubuntu. So Ubuntu I don't know how it shows up on Ubuntu, but on FreeBSD, if you turn on uh, in top, if you make it show system processes, you'll see uh, ZFS kern, and that's where the CPU usage from the compression will be. And yeah. That's slick. Very good. Okay, part two, Alan. What would be the best way for us to extract a backup of the volume while minimizing the performance impact? Keep in mind that we're okay with some diff between the running state and the backup state, and that we're able to lock the DB for the duration of the snapshot. We have a secondary Mongo node dedicated just to do this. Uh, so anything in regards to uh, extracting the backup of a volume. So say he does like something, maybe he well, plays snapshot. Well, the snapshots are instant, so... Uh, that there won't be a time there, although you might want to make sure your Mongo does a flush, uh, lock, flush, then do the snapshot, and okay. then unlock. Okay. But, uh, just so that the file on this, as far as ZFS is concerned, is actually in a consistent state. Uh, but ZFS snapshots are instantaneous as that goes. But um, as far as the backup, there's a couple of ways to go. It depends how, what kind of a backup you want to. Um, Obviously, ZFS send and receive works great, although you know there can be a performance saver of reading all the data, obviously. Uh, it depends. If all your data is in RAM, it can go a little faster. Um, another option, especially if you want like archival-type databases, kind of like your old like, tape rotation-type mechanism, is if you build your array out of mirrors, which is probably what you're going to want to do for best performance for a database anyway, if you make your mirrors three or more disks deep, then there's a zpool split command where you can actually say, make a new pool called backup by taking one disk out of every mirror pair uh, and that makes a new pool with all of your data in it, hmm. right? So you can say, all right, all my, um, my RAID 10 is made up of uh, groups of three disks at a time. I do zpool split and now the last disk in each one of those mirror sets is a new pool, which I can then physically pull those disks out of the machine uh, like and then put them in the corner like my old tapes mm -hmm. and pop in mm -hmm. blank discs, mm -hmm. resilver them up, uh, and you can adjust the speed of the, uh, the how ferocious the resilver is with some sysctls. Uh, I think it's a resilver delay, and that uh, controls how often it how much it sleeps between each uh, IOP for a resilver. The default is two ticks, which on uh, FreeBSD kernel is two milliseconds, but on Illumos is twenty milliseconds because of the tick rate. But um, means that you would do 500 IOPS. Now, that might be too much for your pool or not enough. Uh, and so you can adjust it. Uh, so, you know, if you want to reseller quickly for security uh, risk mitigation, then you can uh, make the number lower. And if you want to reseller slower for performance, uh, to keep more performance, uh, then you can crank the number up. Uh, and that, so you can actually, that way, then the, that set of disks that was the backup can either go into like cold storage or can go into another computer or something. And after, you know, you keep two or three or four um, sets of those and then you just rotate them, right? The oldest one goes mm. back in mm -hmm. and resilvers. Right. I don't know if when you stick an old one in, if it can catch up, I'm pretty sure it can't, but. Uh, and I guess that kind of answers maybe part four, but he wanted to know if you had any um, The other thing is if, if you're doing ZFS send, you can use a, a program in the pipe, like, you know, you use ZFS send, pipe, ZFS receive. Yes. Uh, you can put something in between that just institutes a rate limit. Uh, and that then it won't read faster than that, right? Uh, and he's asking in the chat room right now, is there a way you would recommend scripting that? Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, I described that mechanism in more detail in the uh, ZFS best practices article uh, that is going to be in the next issue of the FreeBSD journal. Hmm. So buy that, and it explains it in more detail. There you go. Uh, Alan, any notes for uh, considerations for nodes running on EC2? Is there anything there? Um, 
a little bit you have to remember that when you're writing to ec2 like if you're writing to uh, an elastic block store or whatever they call that um that there's probably some level of rate underneath there and the biggest thing is if you're running zfs on top of ec2 uh, uh, especially the uh, what do they call it? ebs ebs is the 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 big volumes you attach um you normally only have one of those right and so zfs has nowhere to recover data from if there is corruption right so if there's uh you know bit rot happens on the disks underneath the ebs at amazon or whatever you have no way to know or to recover that so make sure you always use at least two separate ebs volumes and mirror them mm. so that if there is a problem zfs has somewhere to get redundancy from mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so, and if you want more performance, obviously, what you can do is make a RAID 10 out of a whole bunch of EBS volumes, right? Like two, two. Now, so obviously, um, if you are using EBS volumes like that, then you don't really have the whole, you know, pop a disk out and and keep it as a spare, really, right? Uh, or you know, for cold storage, but you could probably get away with something like that as well. A couple of more points of clarification. I'm just going to touch on here. Uh, uh, he asks, uh, should I set the system to use a no-op I.O. scheduler and let the hypervisor host do the work? Does ZFS have any say on which to use? Any uh, notes on I.O. schedulers and ZFS, Alan, under VM? Um, I'm not used to doing it on Linux, so I don't know there. Okay. and then uh, He also asks about best practices for using Mongo with ZFS. That I don't actually know. Um, mostly, uh, if you let ZFS take care of it, it should be fine. There you go. Yeah. Uh, okay, that okay, is. So, just, so I'm going so through. Like, he has one question about ZFS, uh, but uh, XFS. XFS. That uh, be, that's SSD ready FS. Uh, ZFS um, yeah. is already ready. Uh, you can have your pool consist of all SSDs, and mm. it'll be fast. Or you can have spinning disks for more storage, and then SSDs for the read and write caches to speed things up. And uh, the, did you see this last question part C about the read ahead setting? Ah, yeah, so ensure the read head setting for the block devices that store the data files are appropriate. For random access, use patterns, uh, yeah. set low threshold. Ah, so in ZFS, there's a VDEV cache, which is the per disk cache, and separately, there's a prefetch uh, code. And both of those can be adjusted and enabled and disabled. Honestly, the best way to adjust those, though, is um, there's a tool called ZFS Stats. It's uh, some shell scripts. Okay. I think. Shell or Perl, one of the two. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's one that does it live. And basically, under your workload, you look at the cache hit ratios. You know, is that VDEV cache, which is the, the actual, like, uh, read ahead on the disk, if the cache hit ratio is really good, give it more RAM. If it's really bad, take RAM away and okay. use it for something else. Okay. Uh, and then same with the prefetch. Uh, so normally, when ZFS reads a small chunk, it'll actually read a bigger chunk. Or especially if you ask it to read a bunch of small chunks near each other, it'll just expand and read one big chunk because it's faster to read that off the disk. Um, now, that's when it's used to a physical disk. The performance characteristics dealing with an EBS volume where it's actually a RAID 6 underneath, it's harder to tell what the best thing to do there is, right? Uh, so, basically, you look at the numbers and tell, uh, is, is the prefetch doing any good? If the cache hit ratio is really low, then turning it off means you'll do smaller reads and you might get lower latency that way. And, uh, you know, on an SSD where IOPS aren't the issue, then maybe prefetch off will actually give you more throughput in the end. Mm. All right, Alan, you ready for the next one? Yep. SMS or Smash writes in. He wants to know a little bit about your laptop. He says, hello, Chris Allen and fellow JP fans. SMS here from the East Coast, just outside of Atlanta. Recently on TechSnap 197, I heard Alan talk about his modified Lenovo. From what I gather, he has a Lenovo ThinkPad T-Series laptop. He mentioned he opted... 
T530. He, opt- he mentioned he opted to swap out the optical bay for an SSD drive. I, too, made the same changes on my Lenovo T420. However, it comes with an MSATA mini PCI Express slot next to the RAM. I was able to purchase a 250-gig MSATA SSD. Very cool. Uh, anyways, he says, uh, I'm not here to talk about my system. I am, however, very interested to hear how Alan has his Lenovo set up. Did he run BSD Windows, or is he dual-booting? Any luck with the fingerprint reader under BSD Linux? Does he use any virtualization on the host, like VMware, via, via a VirtualBox, anything like that? And does, it, does he have the MSATA mini, mini PCI Express slot in his rig? Uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure about the MSI. Um, I know this laptop had the option of a 3G mobile card mm. via a mini, uh, like a probably status, probably. Or a mini PCI yep. Express slot. Must be it then. Um, mini uh, PCI Express drives weren't really popular when this one first came out. And so I think it has a slot, but I don't know if it's long enough to fit a very big one. You'd have to have one of the like, microscopic ones. Okay. So you wouldn't be able to fit, you know, so now they have like longer ones yeah. that are almost as long as a stick of RAM. That's what she it said. It wouldn't fit that, but it would have, uh, it, it does have a spot for a smaller one. And I might look into that just because you give me a third hard drive <laughs> for fun. I'd love to mirror my SSDs uh, just because I have, uh, you know, I've started to build up important stuff on this laptop. Um, <laughs> it gets more and more valuable as time goes on. Yeah, although I have a giant 512 gig uh, SSD in it, and so it'd be expensive to get a little MSATA to cover that. But um, <laughs> So yeah, I have the 16 gigs in mind. Uh, as far as the thing, so when I built it originally, um, FreeBSD didn't support UEFI, and the Windows was already set up with UEFI and, and other considerations. Uh, so what I did was um, I stuck the PCBSD on the SSD in the optical bay. Yeah. And that drive is actually partitioned in half. And uh, basically, I would select from the... Uh, so I enabled the BIOS for uh, UFI plus legacy. So then when the machine boots up, I can just like press F8 for the boot menu. Boom. And I can choose Windows or boot off the SSD. Excuse me. Uh, boot off the SSD. Yeah. Half of the SSD is ZFS for my uh, PCBSD. The other half is NTFS for recording videos at conferences because uh, I want to record to a fast disk. Um, and that's how it was for a long time. Then the UEFI code for FreeBSD came out. What I've actually done is shrunk my Windows partition Ooh. on the internal uh, spinning hard drive like that. and installed FreeBSD 11 on that. So my computer actually has Windows 8, uh, FreeBSD 11, and PCBSD uh, 10.1. <laughs> and so uh, then I installed Refind, the yes. UEFI boot manager. Yeah. So when you boot up the Windows drive, you get a refine menu, and you can choose Windows or FreeBSD 11, uh, or you can um, uh, press F8 and boot off the SSD and get PCBSD instead. That's complicated, Alan. A little bit. Um, so definitely, uh, the nice thing about a setup like that is that by default, it just boots Windows. So when you have to open it at the airport, they don't see anything they don't understand. Oh, so you don't look like a terrorist. Well, I don't look like a hacker. Either, You're a so. cyber terrorist from Canada. My, my, my laptop doesn't boot in all text or something, so I'm <laughs> automatically not a hacker. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the other giveaway is if your computer makes the as stuff prints on the screen, then they really know you're a hacker because only type. hacker computers do that. Uh, okay. Christian writes in with our next email. It says, great shows. Thanks for watching a long time. You know the drill. Over Christmas, I could finally set up a nice HTPC for my parents. It's running XBMC on Windows 8.1. It's because I need any DVD and that needs Windows. And so far, everything's great. However, I need some help from you. At my place, I have a little server that conveniently hosts all my movies and TV shows. I think you already know where I'm going with this. I would like my parents to be able to watch the same content as I can. Both my parents and I have a decent connection, but the home theater PC is using Wi-Fi, so in the end, I can push about 20 megabits to the home theater PC, but it's not totally reliable. Therefore, I think streaming is not an option. 
Well, uh, first of all, most streaming, you shouldn't need more than 20 megabits. No. Uh, less than that will be fine. The downside there is I'm doubting your cable connection at home is actually able to push 20 megabits. Yeah, yeah. Probably more like five. Although, even most, H, like, you're watching TechSnap live right now, and this is um, this is less than a megabit. Uh, so, streaming might be an option. Uh, if your files are very, very HD, they probably aren't. The easiest way to calculate the megabits of your video file sitting on your hard drive is take the file size, divide it by the number of seconds in the video, and then multiply that by eight, because uh, that'll be bytes and you want bits. And that'll give you the number of bits per second. And you know, uh, So number of megabytes divided by number of seconds uh, times eight will tell you um, the bit rate. So in that case, uh, you might actually be able to stream or you can use something that can transcode it down to a slightly yeah. lower bit rate yeah. and stream it. I mean, honestly, so that might actually be an this is this is a. I mean, I, so this is where I love XBMC, except for the fact that Plex does this and it does this so much better. Like, so I have three Plex servers that I are shared between my account. Uh, one is my buddy Chase's, one is one here at the studio, and one is here at my house. And anywhere I go, I can watch content from any of those Plex servers over their various connections. doesn't matter if they're behind NAT. The Plex system handles all of that. They do the connection for you. So they install the Plex app on their computer, and they literally could just play everything from your, even if you only had one megabit up. Plex could make that work. So it handles varying speeds very well. It can automatically adjust transcoding to make sure that it matches within your bitrate. Uh, and they get full metadata access to everything so they can see the ones they've watched. They get descriptions. They get a full interface, just as good as XBMC. And it does it for you all automatically. You just have to have a Plex Pass account. So that's one it, option. Uh, yep, that is one option. And, uh, you know, I have known someone's also building a um, something along the lines of. Uh, kind of a mesh network. Mm. You mm -hmm. a bunch of people and like, mm -hmm. uh, not only could you stream stuff from them, but you can choose stuff to like replicate. That's, so I've, that you keep, yes. You actually get a local copy. I've heard stuff. about something kind of like this and it looks really cool. Yeah. Um, but so that's definitely an option. Then he talked about, uh, you know, he set up own cloud and sync videos. The problem is the HTPC doesn't have as much storage as he has yeah. on his storage server. Yeah. Uh, obviously, and own cloud's going to have a hard time is, with that over time. Right. Uh, but also, uh, one option there, obviously, is to break your media up into a couple of categories and it's like well that category of stuff my parents are never going to want to watch yeah, yeah don't bother your whole doctor who collection yeah or something like that yeah uh and so that can help you also a uh, BitTorrent sync might be better at replicating things like this than own cloud own cloud's going to be better at docs and images large you know two gigabyte files and things like that you might have better luck with BitTorrent sync Whereas BitTorrent Sync really breaks down with a lot of small files, like you would have giant directories of yeah, documents, right? Yeah, you're kind of using it for the own cloud for the reverse of probably its its sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, so that might be an option for that. Um, as far as, uh, but yeah, so streaming is probably your best option. And uh, yeah, most uh, video is compressed, and you don't end up getting over the 20 megabits until you uncompress it, which is already going to happen yeah. on the HTPC. And so uh, you should definitely be able to stream it if you have a reasonable connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, uh, if you have bandwidth restrictions for IFP, that might get into a slightly different category. But yeah, uh, I then, you know, I do know if they watch one movie a night. It's not going to add up to that much. I do know of some listeners who have DigitalOcean droplets and they have Plex servers installed on them, or they have uh, XBMC servers installed on them, and they VPN into them and they watch them over their connection. But I, for me, I prefer just to have it all locally, uh, and then I just have the Plex. Because well, the problem with doing that on DigitalOcean is SSD-based storage means it's not cheap to get more storage. I don't think they're using the SSD storage for it. Oh, okay. I don't know what so they're using. Plex. Oh, the, I guess they were just using the droplet to do the transcoding. I think so. A powerful CPU. Yeah. 
That might make sense. Yeah. Uh, you could really be fancy and rig it up with the API so it only boots up the transcoder when they're trying to watch something. Oh, my. Oh, my. That is fancy. Somebody write an app for that. Okay, our last email comes in from Bunny and looking for alternatives to RAID. Dear TechStat, my friend Locutus wants a redundant backup solution, but he's terrified of RAID for some reason. What's the I best option? I missed the joke. His name is Locust, as in a bug. No, Locutus of Borg, Alan. Oh, is it? And that's you what should, I'm... No, that's sure what, it says Locust, doesn't it? It is in my world, it's Locutus. Uh-huh. Yeah. When, when uh, you're the person that gets to read the emails, you get to make up your own words. That's my yeah, rule. Okay. Okay, so how do we help the cutest here who doesn't want to use RAID but still wants redundant files? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't totally know. You, you realize this is supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Let's help the cutest. Locust? Um, I don't know. Use ZFS mirrors. Well, all there. right, that's what I was waiting for with ZFS. I was, just, I was waiting for the ZFS. Because well, it's RAID Z, so it's still RAID, and it'll still kill the bugs. Yeah, there you go. Uh, okay. Locust is a bug, and he doesn't want to get killed by the RAID. Right, because he's afraid of it, because RAID kills bugs. Yes. Uh, all right, so there you go. ZFS, because it doesn't... If you want to... If you would like to also uh, send in a hilarious email like Bunny did, you can email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you want to confuse Chris live on the air, send us an email. Yeah, no, you just don't know how I'm going to read it. That's the only thing you have to take into yes, mind. It's just I going read to it. make things up based on it. It'll be hilarious. I read it how I want, and if there's a way I can go Star Trek, it's almost always going to go Star Trek. <laughs> I don't mind that. <laughs> All right, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Just a couple of more weeks. Please, we've got like four of them now. How has TechSnap helped you, like in the work, in a project, at home? Has there been a story we've covered, an email we've answered that has been beneficial to you at some point? Let us know for episode 200. We're doing a TechSnap special. Just put episode 200 in the subject line, if you would. That way we can filter it and send it in. You can go to the contact page. You can email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can also submit at the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. But, Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of Stories just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them, give you some links to follow up on your own. And heck, some of these links came from our subreddit. Not a lot of them this week. What the heck? TechSnap.reddit.com. And Alan, our first story grinds my gears. You know, basically every free download site now wants to give you junk. And uh, how to geek... I guess my first thing is... Hasn't that been true for the last hmm. 10 years? Has it always been like CNETsDownload.com and stuff, though? Well, CNETsDownload.com has always sucked. There's mm. never been it. Yeah, Part of it is anybody can submit stuff, so it was just full, half full of junk. You know what I like, though? Now, when it got worse was when they started actually making their own downloader thing that yes. included. It, basically, that's how they I, I like it. this, though. You see, when you go over to HowToGeek, they've got a great screen. It's a lot of screenshot porn of all the different junk that tries to get installed when you use these services. It just really well, just puts it all out there. Have you, have you tried to install Adobe Flash? Oh, McAfee. Or you want to install uh, Java? Oh, here. have. Right, yeah. This is one of the reasons uh, I don't like using Windows. Windows. This is one of the reasons I don't like using Windows. If you go into the Java settings in your control panel, yeah. there's actually in the advanced options somewhere, there's an option to automatically not ask you to install Ask, yeah. the toolbar or whatever. Yeah. Like turn off sponsored content or whatever. I, I honestly don't know how, how you guys do this on Windows. How do you just put up? How, it's just crap. It's constantly getting crap in your face. Just don't know how you guys do it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> I guess. You click a button and it goes away. I guess. All right, Alan. I, next- I understand it's it's not fair that, you know, you have to know where the button is to find it and click it or whatever, but Yeah. I just prefer installing it from a repo. Uh, the next story in the roundup, an introduction to social engineering 
on the uh, CERT.gov so, uh, site. CERT UK, uh, which is the computer engineering response team or whatever, uh, or computer emergency response team, they deal with, uh, you know, putting out advisories about this stuff. So we've talked about CERT before, mm -hmm. uh, but each country has their own version of it and they all coordinate. And uh, technically, when you find a vulnerability, mm -hmm. you can report it to them and they'll take mm -hmm. care of disclosing it properly and so on. Although they notify certain people sooner than other people because that's their workflow or whatever. But anyway, uh, they put out a uh, best practices guide on dealing with social engineering. Uh, so it's a PDF you can download and it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, although it's fairly basic, you know, it, but it uh, covers the definitions kind of talking about fishing versus baiting and spear fishing, watering hole attacks, uh, you know, physical baiting and, and, you know, all the different ways that uh, people could do social engineering. Like, uh, obviously, we know what fishing is and spear fishing, but they uh, physical baiting, like leaving the USB stick in the parking lot and watching someone pick it up and go plug it into the computer at work, right? And lots of things like that. Mm hmm uh, and then they also have mitigation advice, right? Make sure your users are aware of the signs of phishing and know how to uh, spot a phishing email. You know, make sure you're uh, sharing information and keeping up on the advisories and have user awareness sessions where you teach the users not to fall for this stuff. You know, encourage users to verify any strange requests or messages by calling the originator uh, at a number they know is the right one, right? So if you get a call from somebody asking for something, Call them back on the number you know is mm. the right one, not mm -hmm. the one they called you from. Mm -hmm. And make sure it was actually the person that was asking, uh, you know, some guy claiming to be Bob Jones called and asked for this. Well, call the real Bob Jones be like, did you just ask me for this? Or, you know, you can even make it innocuous so they don't know that you're doing it to them, right? And be like, oh, I just want to double check this fact about it or whatever. And if they have no idea what you're talking about, you just saved yourself from getting scammed. If yeah. not, we have it seemed that, like you're being extra careful. We had a similar 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 policy for user password changes at a lot of places yeah. I've worked. Exactly. Uh, you know, make users aware of their online presence and caution them to you know not share uh, too much stuff about work on social media that could lead to somebody understanding how to spearfish better or knowing inside information to make it seem like they know that they're supposed to be there or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, assess how information in your organization is made public so that you can avoid stuff like that. Implement policies to reduce risk. And, you know, they have a whole list of stuff in here. Uh, but it's definitely a good guide to point people out if they don't, if they need more explanation of what phishing and spear phishing are and what a watering hole attack is and so on. You know, yeah, it's a good yeah. paper. Yeah. might be 10 years late, but anyway. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably basics for a lot of our audience, but it still, I think, could be handy for some of them. Exactly. It's a it's a nice UK government report, so it's easier to stick in front of certain people. I'm glad you you picked this one up and didn't let this one slip. Uh, the FBI seeks to legally hack you or track you if you're connected to Tor or a VPN. And I guess this is because they think, well, they might be doing bad things, so therefore we can just skip the warrant trying process. Trying to hide what they're doing, so automatically we we take that as as proof that it's like no I'm right. just using VPN and so to be clear what they're fighting for here is the ability to track it and connect to it and hack it whatever you want to call it without a warrant mm. so that's great right still need a warrant. yeah and they they argue that the time sensitive nature of these kinds of activities are too tight and that the well, the warrant process is too long uh, most people using a VPN are connecting to work to do work and are not criminals. Yeah. And then the next group of people, the next biggest group of people are connecting to a VPN to access a private network of their own for something. Right. You know, like, my biggest use of VPNs is to get into the private network of my servers to be able to do the uh, the out-of-band management features because we don't expose those to the internet because they would sure. 
you know, totally be legit. a target. Totally attack. legit. So I VPN yeah. to a bunch of different places just to manage my servers, and that doesn't make me a criminal. No, it makes me so a good. What, what's up? At, what's at stake right now? It's called Federal Rule Forty One B, and the requested change would allow law enforcement to obtain a warrant to search electronic data without providing any specific details, as long as the target's computer location has been hidden through a technical tool like Tor or a VPN or another means. So maybe even multiple proxies would count, I would think. Furthermore, it'll the... Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they're going to like change the definition of proxy to be so that they can just yeah. spy on it. How do you like this part? The provision would also allow investigators to seize electronically stored information regardless of whether that information is stored inside or outside the court's jurisdiction. <laughs> Hey oh. All right, Krebs has a roundup story for us. Java has plugged 19 security holes. Wow. 13 of which have a 10 out of 10 exploitability Hey-o. score. So, make sure you uh, are running at least Java 7 update 75 or Java 8 update 31. Also be careful um Java uh, Oracle starting to push the auto updater in Java 7 to switch you to Java 8. Hmm. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but you know, if you have some specific reason for staying for seven, just uh, be cognizant of that. Uh, this next story, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, according to the New York Times in their Asia-Pacific uh, section, the NSA breached North Korea networks before the Sony attacks, according to officials that know more about the matter, I guess. In particular, they're saying, we know that it was the DPRK that hacked Sony because we had hacked their network before and watched them do it. Apparently. Well, this is the new. What they're trying to say. This is our new world where apparently our government just has omnipotent technical powers that can do anything they want, and we just have to trust them when they tell us we've done this, but we can't tell you how we've done it and how we know. Yeah. Um, they just can. Uh, supposedly, they get into anything and they can monitor anything, and they can tell us, well, yes, we have proof that we can't show you. We have secret proof. Yeah. I don't like that, but okay. Yep. I mean, it seems. Fe- I'm not saying they're lying. It seems feasible, but it just seems a little, little shady. Right. Yeah. Uh, also, speaking of shady, uh, and this story's been making the rounds for a little while. The AP covered it, so I decided to throw it in here. Uh, government healthcare website is quietly sharing personal data is the headline. The government's health insurance website is quietly sending consumers' personal data to private companies that specialize in advertising and analyzing internet data for performance and marketing. This is according to the AP. The scope of what is disclosed or how it might be used was not immediately clear, but it can include age, income, zip code, and whether a person smokes and if the person is pregnant. It can include a person's internet address, which can identify a person's name or address when combined with other information collected by sophisticated marketing and advertising firms. The Obama administration says healthcare.gov's connection to data firms were intended to help improve the consumer experience. Officials said outside firms are barred from using the data to further their own business interests. There's no evidence that the personal information has been misused, but the connections to dozens of third-party, dozens of third-party tech firms were documented by technology experts who analyzed healthcare.gov and confirmed by the AP. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like the healthcare website should be just letting other sites... uh, you know, plant cookies on you or track Well, the you fact or, that they're getting your zip code and your income and your age yeah, and if I you smoke... I understand why they're doing so it that. It sounds like and there's an API. It's not even making money off of it, Doesn't which it, is the only reason to ever do it. I so mean, to get, that level of, to get that level of detail, you almost would have to build into the system for, for, this, for, this, for, this, for this software to get that information. Uh, not necessarily. Right? You know, most of these advertising platforms have systems for doing this, right? Mm. Uh, that's it's why... on their own. When you sign up for uh, Facebook's a bad example, but some certain uh, websites, we you know they want all this information from you when you sign up. It's because they're selling that information yeah. and that profile about you. You know, it's uh, like that old comic there. 
uh, the pigs talking about it's like oh, it's great they let us live on the farm for free and so on if you're signing up for free service <laughs> you have to fill out all this information about yourself the reason it's free is because they're selling that information to pay for it yeah now so it definitely seems almost like this one is like the contractor that was hired to build the web the healthcare website decided they would make their money off of selling people's oh, information to advertisers jeez. or something hmm. <clears throat> it, it i don't understand why that's in there that yeah that just seems like horror bad all right, Alan, our next story in the roundup. Watch out if you are a Steam user on FreeBSD and move your Steam I'm folder. I'm on FreeBSD. Oh. On Linux. Oh. Hmm. Probably would be the same problem, though. No, because uh, on FreeBSD, you actually run Windows Steam under Wine, and oh, so it doesn't... It so doesn't, because FreeBSD... doesn't have a shell script that runs right. rm minus rf slash. So just so I have this right, because FreeBSD doesn't have native Steam support, it's better off. At this point. Yeah, okay. Although I'm working, I, I've, I'm working on the 64-bit Linux ports, which I don't mm. think will actually bring Steam, obviously, but it'll bring lots of... Uh, Can I uh, suggest that you don't bring over this bug? Yeah. Yeah, okay. This bug was actually in a shell script. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, and basically, they were RM minus RF dollar sign <laughs> oh, Steam folder yeah. slash. Yeah. And sometimes, in certain situations, the Steam folder variable could be empty, resulting in RM minus RF slash. Mm. Uh, as basically, I, apparently it happens when you delete your .steam settings file, which some people do when they think their Steam is screwed up to make it resync or something. Oh, jeez. And uh, Steam gets confused and accidentally, uh, when it reinitializes, it actually deletes your entire hard drive instead of just the Steam folder. Anything that user account has access to. I'm surprised that I haven't been bit by this myself. I guess I've never done this. Yeah. Uh, it seems that you have to do something to cause Steam to do it. It's not running yeah. this command every time you start Steam. Right. And it's, it's running it when like, you reset your profile or something. It has been to, patched, too, as NetMiners point out. I think it has think been so. patched, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so this next story, Alan, blows my mind. The NSA is prepping America for future battles, according to uh, leaked documents right. that their so Spiegel's gone So this one's a really through. long story with lots of documents. Yeah. Uh, but there's one particular one to highlight. Okay. There's uh, a diary of a, an NSA intern. So basically like a student that worked at the NSA for like a summer. Of course. Uh, and it's basically it's the monthly notes of him working as an intern for June of 2012. Okay. So first he talks about he, uh, he built the, uh, the tool for the NSA called Pitied Fool. Yes. Uh, which is a suite of uh, tailored access tools for um, using against file systems initially focused on Windows. And uh, it's like you can find more information about it on our internal wiki. Uh, but basically, uh, the combination of volume shadow copy and deleted entries in the shadow copy uh, were causing people to be able to recover data when they used this thing to destroy the computer. Uh, as a result of the shadow copy having large chunks of MFT data in it, um, it meant that when he erased the MFT, Windows could still recover some of the files. Mm -hmm. um, and so he added functionality to the pity fool program to overwrite the contents of the shadow copy for each partition so it could properly destroy the NTFS partition. And uh, now people uh, no longer uh, get their code back, although there's a performance issue now because you're um, uh, overwriting so much more data. Yeah. And he was doing it one sector at a time. And so he's like, I can make it go faster by writing in bigger chunks and so on. Wow. Uh, and he talks about that, and then uh, combining it with uh, fuzzy Ebola, which is one of the ways it could get into your computer to run something like this. Fuzzy Ebola. How about these yeah. code names, huh? Yeah, and this is from 2002, before Ebola was, you know, in the news kind of thing. Right. Uh, but basically, when running this virus on a Windows computer, performance went from zero, uh, CPU usage went from 0% to 2%. Uh, and then the system rebooted and wouldn't be able to come back up because everything was destroyed. Yikes. 
Then he started on uh, one called Pant Spartly. <laughs> uh, although if you move the space around, it says Pants Party. <laughs> ah, yes. But they, they, the space seems to be in the right place every time, so I think it's supposed to be called Pants Spartly. But yeah, it, I think I know um, who's going, though. Or Pants Sparty. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's a backdoor in the SSH daemon. So this is the one people were talking about the other week. And they're, oh, they're going to break Higgins. What they were doing was taking regular SSH and implanting their own backdoor in it. And then when they got root access on a uh, computer, they would just replace your SSHD with theirs mm. so that they could uh, get into your machine. Mm -hmm. So they took OpenSSH Portable. So that's the version from OpenBSD that they make for every other operating system. Uh, and then they would uh, basically put a certain public key embedded into the binary and if you connect with that public key, it would let you log in with any username and give you a root shell. And he goes on to describe uh, how he had to work around a bunch of different uh, mitigations and the privilege separation in OpenSSH. So it was actually very hard to be able to like switch usernames and stuff. Mm. Uh, and they just talk about, he talks about all the work he did. And basically, it, it only took him two days, but he had to do a bunch of extra work compared to backdooring some other daemon that didn't have as many security features and privilege separation. Two days, though, for the intern. Yeah. Well, he's a fairly competent intern. Apparently. I guess so. Huh. Uh, and, it, and it says he read his previous record, which was uh, he wrote the Dirty Deeds exploit in three days. Uh, but he says, you know, he, he thinks he can get it down to one day if he really tries. Hmm. Uh, and then he has uh, talking, he got a letter of appreciation from the director of DSD, a letter of appreciation from the chief of Suslock. I forget what that... Uh, means and he's got a suslock uh, challenge going and he also flew to australia and then down at the bottom he actually talks about uh going to australia and getting to see the lord of the rings oh. uh sites and <laughs> so on and then wow going to tasmania nerd and stuff. great yeah that's great well he's like 19 or 20 or something that's awesome a that's a great gig for a 19 year old 20 year old yeah work for the nsa hack some things hack some open ssh uh, all right, uh, Krebs is here to remind us that stop, stop using the same password all over the place because it's fueling a spike in fraud rates. Yeah, so uh, Starwood, which is a big chain of hotels, uh, apparently there was a big spike in uh, people having their uh, rewards account stolen and people would use the points to stay in hotels for free and so on. Uh, or, you know, have a party at the hotel on your, on your free points. Mm -hmm. uh, and so originally people were saying, oh, they must have been hacked or something. Like, no, it's just... Uh, somebody wrote uh, a program that could easily uh, that would automate the process of trying username and password combinations mm -hmm. on the Starwood website, <laughs> and then just plugged it in with a giant list of known mm -hmm. e a easy passwords and b uh, passwords that have been stolen from others uh, username and password combinations that have been stolen from other sites like the Adobe hack and so on, right? So you have a list, a giant list of email addresses and uh, the password that yeah. person uses, yeah. and you just and once you hack one site, you try that at other sites, and you're likely to get it. Damn. Some people, it's even worse when they use the same password for their email address. So you just take their username, which is their email address, and the password. You get that. Then you don't even have to try hacking the other sites. You can just do yeah. password resets. Yeah. But yes, uh, a lot of people probably think, oh, my hotel rewards password doesn't need to be very strong. It's not a big deal. But, you know, when someone's uh, using your points to, <laughs> to stay in a hotel room and racking yeah, up a matters. damage charge or something, then that's a little different. Yeah. Uh, this next story in the run-up, just a personal pet peeve of mine, is somebody who went on a trip uh, in October and ended up paying for in-flight Wi-Fi because 
of a kind of a tragic news event that had happened back at home we want to get updates on. And uh, the Wi-Fi just sucked. Well, the New York Times is here to uh, back us up with an article that sort of documents the sad state of and, and how it started pretty decent. Uh, you know, Virgin America is now charging $34 for in-flight Wi-Fi. When they launched it in 2008, it was $12.95. I think the worst price I've seen is 18 so 34 is crazy. Yeah, and the part of the problem is congestion. Now there's more people on the Wi-Fi. Well, uh, partly that. I mean, yeah, just the total demand for bandwidth. And, you know, the satellite hasn't got any faster. The satellite yeah. can only send the same amount of data it could before. Right. Well, and they and they point out, data. like, uh, the, the Wi-Fi providers like uh, GoGo in flight, they say, when we started in 2006, people didn't have iPhones and tablets that all had Wi-Fi in them. Right. So it's just adding more and congestion. And people weren't trying to watch Netflix on the airplane. Yeah. Or, or like, in my case, streaming Plex. Uh, yeah. All right. You were trying to stream Plex on the airplane? I did, yeah. Well, I figured I had to try it. I mean, why not? Right. Um, I paid for it, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> and they blocked uh, everything else, so I wanted to see if I could out- outsmart them. Yeah. Uh, the way I saw it on the train when I used it one time was you got full speed on the first 75 megabytes, mm. and after that you were limited to 120 kilobits per second. Yeah, I noticed a huge slowdown on the train, too. I just thought that was just different areas. Well, this was via, so it's separate. But, uh, yeah, it told you during the, the captive portal, it's like you can have full speed, but if you start using a lot, we're going to cap you to not so we don't kill everybody else's performance. Yeah. It's like, uh, hmm, I wonder if I can just change my MAC address and get another 75 megabytes. All right, Alan, here we go for best headline of the week. IT cock-up, not a jihadi DDoS, fingered for French web media blackout. Yeah. Uh, so the register is reporting that, you know, we saw that a while ago. It was like, oh, DDoS attack takes out 19,000 French media websites. It's like, no, no. Somebody screwed up and took a server down or whatever, messed up a route, something. Uh, They're not entirely sure exactly what happened, but it wasn't something somebody did maliciously. It was a mistake an IT person made. It was just regular downtime, not a terrorist attack. Oh, my gosh. Hey, uh, are you looking forward to Black Hat the movie? What do you think? Get supposed to get some hacking done right. Interesting for Kaspersky, one of the big uh, antivirus companies, to actually do a review of that a movie. That is true. This is a movie that's out right now? Uh, I think it just came out, yes. Oh. Uh, in, in particular, they say, well, it's not a particularly good movie. They did a very good job getting all the techno babble right. Boy, I bet this uh, is a good cyber boogeyman movie. Well, yeah, they, they do the whole thing where the camera zooms in on the computer and then is like, you know, a packet traveling Here's across the, the code. Net with or whatever. Yeah. And yes, they have a picture there of like, it's literally just some like a hex editor showing like binary and with like one little string of text in it or something. Yeah. Um, but in general, you know, they talk about uh, hitting the SCADA systems and, and, you know, they use all the right words for it. So while the movie, the plot of the movie itself isn't, you know, anything new, it's basically dramatized version of Stuxnet, except for it was used against a nuclear plant in the U.S. instead of in the Oh, of course. We're always the victim. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, the the Chinese hacker is a girl so that the Hemsworth will have a a love interest or whatever. But, um, you know, they talk about PLC, right, the programmable logic controllers and breaking them and GPG 512-bit encryption and malware and remote access. Oh, yeah. It looks like there's some good blown up uh, power plant uh, CG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but mostly uh, they got most of the techno babble right, and uh, while the movie shouldn't win an award, <laughs> the technical advisors for the movie yeah, should get an right, exactly, or uh, Oscar or whatever mm-hmm. the one for movies is. Get an honorary mention. Yep. <clears throat> All right, Alan. At, at two hours and thirteen minutes, the movie's forty-three minutes longer than any cyber thriller should be. But <laughs> cyber thriller. Oh, I love it. But they say he he would watch it again if it came up on TNT while he was flipping through channels on a Sunday. 
Uh, how about this one? Uh, a teen caught after posing as an OBGYN at a hospital for a month, fooling doctors for a month. Yeah. So oh, this my title for this one was like, all you need is a clipboard, right? We talk about yes. this all the time. For, yes, we do. For just walk around, look like you know what you're doing. Look like you're supposed to be there. Apparently having a stethoscope works the same way. And I, I just was kind of demonstrating the, the concept is as long as you look like you're supposed to be there and act like you know what you're doing, people's instinct is not to ask you, hey, who are you? Right. What are you Especially doing? here in the States. Yep. They don't want to question it. They don't want to be rude. They don't want to be the one that causes a fuss. The system's got it all sorted out. They don't need to worry about it. Yep. All right, Alan. I think that is everything for this week's episode of TechSnap. Yes. Uh, and uh, so join us next week for 199. We do TechSnap live at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. TV for the video and jblive.info for the audio-only stream, which is great at your desk, on the go, low bandwidth situations. And if you don't know what Pacific and Eastern mean to you because that's some sort of crazy moon time, just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We have robots there that do math for you in real time and then render an HTML page for you so that way you can read it. It's kind of incredible. Also, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That's where we have the monkeys waiting for your messages and they send it off to the host. So send in your tech snap emails. We love your questions, all kinds of stuff. You've seen us answer a whole bunch and we need more. We fuel on it jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And last but not least, just a quick plug for the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Yes. Okay, Alan. Well, I'm looking forward to episode 199. Hopefully I'll have you in 16 by 9 next week. Yes. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know what kind of sacrifice to the uh, computer gods will have to make for that to happen, but I'm going to start sacrificing. Hopefully I just land on the right one. It's going to be a lot of sacrifice in between now and next week, Alan. That's all I'm saying. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. 